Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, we now have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash willosophy. Um, if you like the podcast and you'd help, uh, like to help keep the lights on, as we say, uh, pay Podcast Mike, who books the guests, and uh, make sure that this comes out weekly, and James Fosdyke, who does the amazing original art for each episode, and uh, Mike Hal, our US producer, who uh, stitches it all together, um, you know, uh, I am happy to do the podcast for free, um, but I believe that the people who help me do it should be paid to do it. And uh, by contributing to the Patreon, patreon.com slash philosophy, for as little as a dollar a month, uh, you can help make sure that the podcast comes out weekly, as we have been uh, managing to do so far this year. And um, I've been banking a bunch of episodes um, so that I, I don't have to be doing the podcast when Gruen is on. Because uh, my TV show, Gruen, is back at the end of September. So uh, if you're a fan of that or if you've never seen it before, it's on the ABC on a Wednesday night. And um, it's about how advertising works and how it works on us. And next week, um, one of the guests on the show will be, well, one of the guests, the guest on the show uh, will be Russell Howcroft, who's one of the regular members of that show. Todd Sampson, of course, who's the other regular, was the first ever uh, Willosophy guest, first ever person I ever had on this podcast when I... Uh, had even little more, a little even littler idea uh, what I was doing than I do now. So uh, you can support it there. That would be fantastic. Um, I have other podcasts if you like nonsense. Uh, there's one called Tofop. Uh, there's one called Fofop with other comedians, and uh, there's an AFL one uh, which is a complete nonsense called Two Guys One Cup. So if you want to check those out, uh, they're not for everybody. Not everybody who enjoys these podcasts will like those podcasts, but uh, you don't have to. Uh, but if you would like to check them out and hear some nonsense, uh, then uh, you can go and check those out. Okay, that's the plug up the top. Here's what I want to tell you. The Melbourne Writers Festival um, uh, goes from the 30th of August to the 8th of September. When we talk about love is the uh, theme of this year's Melbourne Writers Festival. If you're in Melbourne uh, and you have a chance to go along, it's absolutely amazing. And the reason I mention that is because uh, today's guest on the podcast is a, uh, a dear old friend of mine and uh, somebody I just love having conversations with. Um, just one of those people that um, every time that I get to spend time with her, I enjoy every aspect of it. She's one of the nicest and the most interesting people that I know. And um I just dig her a lot. I just think she's really cool and, and really smart and really funny and just super interesting and, and does things, passion projects and art and stuff that really, art and stuff, you know, <laughs> she does art and stuff uh, that really inspires me and we talk about all those things uh, on this show today. So I hope you're going to enjoy it. Um, oh, so the artistic director of the Melbourne Writers Festival is a, a woman by the name of Marie Carvey and uh she is today's guest on the podcast, so uh, please enjoy this one. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and... Uh, the way that this podcast starts, oh, it's a home one today. I like to tell people. Sometimes they do it at the radio station. Technically not meant to do it at the radio station. This podcast is not on the podcast network that is owned by that particular radio station, but they are good enough to let me, you know, do my little podcast in their studios. But I do like to, uh, when I can do a home edition, if it's somebody that I actually know well enough to invite them around to my home, and then they get asked the important question, 
how do you feel about dogs? Because uh, every time I do a home edition, uh, we are always going to be joined by at least the two dogs. I'm assuming Church the Cat will uh, come up at some stage. But I have Ramona on my uh, lap and uh, Winnie is over on the couch with today's guest. And the way the podcast starts is pretty simple. I just ask the guest who they are. So um, hello, guest. Who are you? Hello, friend. I'm Marie Hardy. Uh, Marie Hardy, nice yes. to have you here. It's so nice to be here. Um, and thanks for having me over to your house to touch dogs. Yeah, which I, I assume is the point of today. Well, I got to be honest with you. I felt like when I was like, now we have to do the podcast, you were disappointed because now that you can only sort of like half concentrate on touching a dog, whereas like there was a good 10 minutes while I was making a cup of tea <laughs> where you were 100% touching dogs. And I actually don't think I said hello to you straight away. I, I dropped to my knees at your front door and just focused on the dogs, which I did feel was quite rude. I apologize, but I didn't have any choice. I'm beholden. I'm, I'm, look at them. I'm helpless to their charms. So, They're so beautiful. As am I, but I have been on single dad duties for about five weeks now. And it's fair to say that these two girls demand uh, a fair amount of attention. Yeah. And so You're I happy feel to like farm this, it is out a this bit. is a good, this is like having, you know, your baby at a party or like it's <laughs> a good auntie situation. You're like, here, hold this. <laughs> hold this. I'm more Rub than this. happy to. Everything will be fine. I do know, um, I've, I know a secret spot on dogs that for almost all, I mean, obviously when you see random dogs on the street and you have to check whether they're okay with being touched but the ones that are just in general check with people if they're okay with i have touched. had to learn that lesson rule. the hard way because i'm so tactile <laughs> and i love touching people like even on the arm fondly and hugging like i love but not everyone likes it has been the learning and now i have to ask first which i do and i'm very respectful of that but um yeah i know the secret spot on dogs bodies that you touch it and they their eyes go funny and they look at you and go how did you know? And in my brain, I go, I just know, I just know. Well, these these girls will love that because they, you know, have been getting a lot of male energy. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm bringing they... them some yoni energy today. Exactly. Yeah. It's good. Now, what's your current uh, pet situation? <laughs> oh, well, my beautiful dog died at the end of 2015. Oh, excuse me. I wasn't putting <laughs> 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 this, this should be video. I told you I knew the secret Winnie, spot. Just for one second, you stopped touching her, and she just like poured you in a way that was like, yeah. "No, back, back to back. what was happening, please." Yeah. That's because I touched stop, the spot. Stop so answering that idiot's questions and concentrate on me. I'm sorry. I apologize for my attentions being taken away. Um, yeah, my beautiful 14 year old Staffy died at the end of 2015, and look, I love dogs, and I'm starting to think about one again but you know that was a huge grief as you know you always know it's going to be but because um I don't want kids and I don't have siblings and so and then I realized afterwards and the kind of after I got through the real cold face of grief was that that was the longest I'd shared my bed with another body and you know you share your bed with another body for a long time and you get so accustomed to the way your bodies have a conversation in the night one of you moves a small way and the other one accommodates it and you know the way that your legs entwine and I shared a bed with that dog for 14 years and I just knew her body as well as I knew my own body so the grief apart from all the normal griefs are when you lose someone or lose a pet or um, the noises and the um, companionship and just that love, I was realising that hole in the bed was a really big one. And then my friend, I was carrying her ashes around with me because we do weird things when we're grieving and there's no wrong 
way to grieve or no length to it. And my friend who's a tattoo artist said, you know, you can mix ashes in with tattoo ink. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. So we mixed her ashes in with some ink and made a tattoo. So now she's with me all the time, which is great. And I think that's, I mean, grief is with you permanently. It changes shape and it fades, but it's always there. And certain random things can make it lurch up in your guts again. And you all of a sudden, seven years later, you hear a song in a supermarket and you fall on your knees. Um, And I think that's beautiful, those little internal bruises we wear as part of the human experience. So I knew that that was a forever grief. So to have a kind of visual representation of it is really lovely and calming in a way. I'm a firm believer in symbolism. I have 100% already decided that I'm going to die before these dogs do because I won't be able to handle it. That I remember looking into my dog's eyes and look, I'm not proud of this will and I said, don't die because if you die, I'm going to kill myself is what I said to my dog, which was not a fair thing to say. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I'm not, I won't survive that. I knew it would happen. But I just well, I, I can't survive it because I've never loved any anyone like this. And I did survive it. And we do survive. We keep surviving things until we die. And life is really fucking hard and really challenging. And yet we can white knuckle our way through things until we just don't anymore. And that's the end. So I'm a firm believer in kind of, I've you know, I've done a lot of work the last few years and being in these experiences and realizing that they are impermanent and potentially the brutality of whatever emotional state you're in at that moment, even though it's really overwhelming, that's impermanent too. That will fade and change shape and you'll, you will survive it. And I think that's been the biggest gift to me because I used to get very overwhelmed with my emotional states and just think, well, I'm going to feel like this forever. This is it now. This is how I live. This is how I feel. And of course, that's really hard to navigate and you do feel trapped within that emotional state. And so I've done, I meditation practice has been really helpful for me. I meditate every day and lots of therapy. And so now when those things rise up, as they inevitably do, over the course of the day, it's just every day is an emotional roller coaster. You go, oh, there's a thing that I'm experiencing that I will get through. And then it passes. It's a huge, it's, a, it's liberating. Well, you've dived in the deep end. Thank you. I do. I do tend to do that. You should try first dates with me. I tend to like. I've been on like. I went on the dating apps. I'm not saying that we should date. Will that's that's inappropriate. We're friends. But I found like I was having date one. We're like, let's talk about death and loneliness. Let's talk about how the fact we're all going to die and isn't loneliness amazing? And isn't loneliness this thing that I'm fascinated by? Because we all seem so afraid of it. We're so afraid of it. We either stay in relationships we shouldn't be in in order to avoid it or we're just constantly searching for who am I going to date? I'm single. I'm single. I've got to find someone to date. But it's with us all the time. Loneliness is with us consistently. We're lonely within relationships. We're lonely with our families. We're lonely in big groups. It's It fascinates me that people seem so terrified of this abyss of loneliness when it's something beautiful within us all the time and accepting that so this is what a first date with me is like (laughs) well okay so you are talking to somebody who essentially came up with this podcast just so i could have those sort of conversations great often i have to kind of you know ease people in often i have to say you know it's it's okay it it, it feels cold at first but you'll get used to it and we can really you know splash around but you've dived in dived in the deep end and and i like that i mean the whole conceit of this podcast is really 
around something that you've already said, which is that life is fucking hard. Yeah, really hard. And essentially the question at the heart of this podcast is life is fucking hard. How are you? You know, that's all I'm really asking people. How are you getting by? How are you getting through the fact that life is hard? I see that life is hard for you and for everybody else. Mm. How are you dealing with life being hard? So I ask people, the conceit of the podcast is I ask if you have a philosophy. Um, do you have one? You can have many. They can be about anything, but that is that is the conceit. So we start with that, and then we talk about all those other things. And we go back to death and loneliness and yeah, grief and the absolutely. nice, light-hearted, sexy topics we started with. Yeah, well, normally I wait until the end to ask you what happens when we die, but I feel like we can jump right in on this one, but I should get the philosophy out of the way first. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got lots. Um, and again, I think... A lot of that came from all the work that I talked about before. Like I'm a, I've got a very strong work ethic, as I know you do as well. And I had a very bad 2015. And I kind of went, at the end of that, I was like, right, I have to put my work ethic to staying alive. And that's when I started working. I didn't like meditation. Meditation was boring. And I didn't want to go to therapy. Therapy is hard. And I just went. I have to treat it like my job. I have to treat staying alive like my job. Um, So a lot of those philosophies have come out of the last three and a half years, which has been a lovely thing of learning to reflect and learning to look inside myself and seeing what's actually there and learning to love it and um, all those things that I'm sure come across. Sometimes people find talking about self-love very whimsical or earnest, which I'm not afraid of. Um, let's see, which philosophies do we even start with? Um, I think listening is a good one. I like to listen to myself and others. Um, learning to connect to instinct and listen to my instinct has been the biggest gift of the last couple of years, I think. Were you a person who would ignore your instinct or would you think totally. that your initial reaction or your instinct was wrong because you would be bringing in other, you know, bits of information to overwhelm it? Like why were you ignoring your instinct? Well, I think m- most of us do um, because you've either got other people saying, well, no, no, it's not like that, it's like this or um, giving their version of events, which are very valid versions as well. Um, We doubt ourselves because we don't know ourselves very well, I think. And that's why I think I've worked so hard to know. I feel now that no one can tell me who I am and what I'm thinking. Like I I know now because I've sat with it. Um, And that means that, you know, I I often refer to um, my instinct as my lighthouse. Like that's reconnecting to that. It's always there. And you always do know. I mean, within... I think you always know quite quickly what you feel or what you think, but then you go, oh, no, I'm only thinking that because I'm a damaged person or because I'm heartbroken over my last relationship or I always do this, this is my anxiety talking or whatever it is. And all those things might be at play as well, but making space for all of those and going, but this is what I feel. And so how do I then be true to what I feel whilst accepting all those other things might be true as well. It might be my anxiety. It might be my damage leading the way here. But what is my instinct telling me and how do I honour it? But, yeah, I absolutely ignored it. There was I was in a very problematic relationship for a long time that I knew I shouldn't be in, but I let myself, I guess, 
be told things that I that weren't true and just kept squishing it down because it's easier to. And so I think every day does feel like a real gift because I get to listen to what's going on and respond to it. And there's no filter between that. There's no person telling me it's not that way or it should be another way. It's just me and mine. And I really fucking love myself. So, you know, life is pretty happy when that's always your base level to go back to. I had to learn to self-parent and to be my own partner. And both of those things are really hard, but ultimately hugely rewarding. So I guess so. intuition and instinct and these sort of things are, are very fascinating to me because you can read a whole bunch of science and pseudoscience, you know, around that idea. I mean, I think the whole Malcolm Gladwell, you know, idea of blink was the idea that, you know, in evolution, there's been an evolutionary sense that our instincts are often, our first instincts on things are often much more accurate than when we start to take in more information. Yep. In fact, often the more information that we take in, the more we can get away from our original instinct. I would really agree with that. And, you know, we can, and I look, I think it has a broader, you know, when we look at the world right now, the amount of misinformation there is out there, people are being taken away from what is true or real or facts, you know, these sort of things from, you know, at the fact that we now have so much information that we can't tell good information from bad information. But on a micro level, you know, mm. yourself, um, how was, was that what was happening? Were you taking in too many other people's opinions and thinking about things too much and and is that or was there something else going on why was it um why was it that i was ignoring my instinct Mm. and i guess why was it and how do you find your way back to it um well i think it was a number of contributing factors again other people telling me it's it's not that way you're 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 miss you're seeing the you're Mm. seeing it the wrong way or you've misinterpreted it. And why um, were you believing because what I, they said? Because I didn't have faith in myself. Like I hadn't done the work. I didn't, you know, I come from a quite um, troubled family background. And I think you get a really diminished sense of self growing up in that way. And you tend to really look to other people for validation and really look to other people sometimes to explain things to you emotionally or to you like I don't quite understand what's happening and then people explain it you go oh I I get I guess that's kind of right and I just I didn't listen to my own voice because I didn't trust it or probably didn't like it you know and like most kids who grow up in a in a trauma family you think there's something terribly wrong with you or terribly wrong inside you and that if anyone stays in your orbit long enough, they're going to eventually see that and they'll eventually leave. And I thought that for years. I thought there's something really dark in here and anyone who sticks around is one day going to see that and then they'll go. Um, So I would just sabotage things before they got the chance to leave, which again is very classic behaviour. And then I, when I made the space to sit and look and there's nothing bad in there. It's golden. It's really nice. So once I learned... By the way, are you comforted by the fact that Ramona is now snoring? Yes. <laughs> she's like, she's like on my lap. I was like, I wonder if people can hear that. She's like, she's obviously very relaxed. Yeah, that's this. good. I'm glad you're giving full yeah. body massage over there as well. I feel like we feel like we're <laughs> massage therapists at the moment. Um, or we're in a session and they've brought in some uh, companion pets. Oh, I'm, oh, God, there should be more of that. I'm very happy with that. Um, uh, okay, can I g- give you an observation? Yes, my love. And, you know, speak to this in whatever way you would like. It's, 
I, I know 100% the case because I've been through it myself, and which is that what, what you project to the world can be often very different to what is really going on in your world and your life and these things for a myriad of reasons, some of them healthy, some of them unhealthy. Mm. But you are a person who I never would have imagined uh, these things of. Yeah. Because the way that you come across is so self-assured. The way that you, in the time that I've known you, which is well over a decade now, um, you've always been the coolest person in the room, the smartest person in the room, the, <laughs> you know, the person who felt like they less gave a shit about the bullshit of everything else that was going around, that they had a real sense of who they were and where they fit into the world and weren't particularly influenced or even worried about what other people thought. Mm. So is that, am I completely off the what, ball the, on that? Well, off the ball that I was the coolest person? Yes. <laughs> but do you understand the observation that yeah, I'm making? Yeah, of course. But I mean, like you said, you know that better than anyone. You put on a big shiny face and go on the television and, you know, you've got your bag of rocks. I think that's a lovely human connection and I do want to talk about empathy at some point but understanding that we're all carrying around our own bag of rocks and everyone's bag of rocks has a very different shape and heft. Um, yeah, I well, it, of course, I, I you know, I, I grew up very publicly so I first started working in the media quite young and what so, was the first thing you did in the media? Oh, well, I was a child actor. So I was in the Henderson Kids. I you was the Henderson, uh, Henderson Kids? Kids too when I was eight years old. I, was I don't have much memory of the Henderson Kids. <laughs> Me neither. But I have a memory that the Henderson Kids was a thing. It was a thing. Yeah. I was in the Henderson Kids too. So Who, was the, who were the stars of the Henderson Kids? Alex Paps. Kids? Oh. Yeah, Nadine Garner. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I remember coming to a... Going to a party, I always thought it was the coolest thing because, yeah, I'm a country kid who's moved to Melbourne to do stand-up comedy. You know? Yeah. And I remember being at some Fitzroy party with a whole bunch of people who ended up, like, you know, with Rosso and, and before Hearst yeah. and a bunch. And I remember going into whoever's house it was into the bathroom and Alex Paps was in the bath at this was party. Was in the bath? Yeah, he got like, into the bath. Was he taking a bath in the He was in taking the a bath. What a cool party. And I remember <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh, how cool is living in <laughs> I would in agree Melbourne. with it. I'm at a party. There's like a bonfire in the backyard and Alex Paps is in the bath. Wow, that, that's a real baller move to take a bath in the middle of a party as well. Like you really, yeah. people are queuing up and you're like, no, nope, taking no. a bath. That's yeah. only Alex. Well, because Pass I think it was a, like I mean, it was a may, may have. Well, I don't know. This was a very long time ago, but it may have only been the only bathroom too. Oh, so that's even real, more baller! Yeah. <laughs> God, what a power move! I'm really into it. Uh, okay, so you were a child actor. Yes. Um, how long were you a child actor for? Oh, unfortunately, the most physically awkward years of prepubescence and adolescence. And then I stopped. Right. <laughs> so from the age of about six or seven to 17, 18. So horror, like, you know, puppy fat and budding bosoms and acne and just terrible haircuts. And that's the period of my life that was really captured on film. So, um, and I guess that was, I was a real precocious kid. You know, I grew up on film sets. Both my parents worked in film and television. So, I grew up around adults. I was around a lot of adult language and and was a smart kid um, and was a real 
you know, look at me kind of performative child as well. And I think one of the gifts I found getting older was realizing that I was a shy person. Because for years I, you know, was I did used to do debating and public speaking and then I was an actor and I did theatre sports and I was in plays and and then I grew up and started writing and I think that understanding that I'm a shy person has only come in the last like seven years or so because I couldn't understand why it was so hard being around people sometimes and why I'd go and hide in the bathroom um, at events and at work and yeah and then once you realize that you can start to put in self-care practices which means of course you have to be in those situations but it's fine if and when you want to leave or if and when you want to hide and it's great it's liberating that's the thing understanding self is is the ultimate liberating thing because you get to look after yourself and understand what you need at any given time without judgment I I'm also a shy person and uh, it, it's, it's actually, I mean, I think I've, I've been aware of it for a very long time, but I am much more open about just talking about it now. Mm. Whereas in the past, I just would, you know, like my friends, it would always be, oh yeah, Will doesn't like to go to things or Will doesn't like to blah, 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 which isn't exactly what it is. Snooty Will. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And look, to be honest, some of it, I almost intentionally you know couched in that way because that was a much more palatable way you know for me to go you know i'm too cool to go to a movie premiere or i'm too cool to go to and when i say too cool you know what I mean? yeah like, yeah you know, like, yeah i'm not gonna get my photo in the paper i'm not gonna be one of those people yeah but the truth of it is that i it doesn't matter if it's a thing for your photo in the paper i just wouldn't go to those things in general you know if we, if i have to go to a party and it's a bunch of people that I don't know. That is a very nervous, you know, proposition for me. So how do you look after yourself within that? Because clearly in your work you have to go to those things sometimes. You can't get out of I mean, sometimes. What I've found is that I'm pretty good at being able to um, – I think that I've, I've got better at accepting that you don't always have to be 100% who you are. Oh, what does that mean? So th- there are very – there are many aspects of who I am, you know, Um not all of them have to be represented at all times. So uh, there are balances of things that I need in my life. Mm. You know, I need some showing off. You know, yeah. if I'm not doing enough stand-up and those sort of things, I will find that, you know, that will have an effect on me. But in the same way as if I'm not having enough alone time or whatever. But mm. they don't all have to be all parts of me at once. Mm. I can be a person who's interested in politics uh, as much as I'm an interest, a person who's interested in Batman or AFL football, and in so far as my personality, I also think that's the case. Mm. In that, here's where I need this sort of, you know, I funnel this sort of idea of being gregarious or loud or social into this area. But I think that, you know, I, look, I definitely think that you know the reason that I, you know, drink more than I should, and that over the years that I've d- dabbled in well, way more drugs than I you know, probably should have, was probably 10% good times and probably 90% social anxiety. Yeah. Without wanting to overstate. No, know, or, not or, at all. Or, you know, inappropriately use social anxiety. No, I remember um, my first nudge at therapy, which was years ago and I, and I dropped it because it was too hard. But I remember going to see someone and that was probably in like 
mid to late 20s when I was like taking a lot of party drugs and hanging out with my friends and apparently having the best time in the whole world. And I remember saying to her, I don't feel anything. Like I don't ever feel happy. I don't feel sad. I just don't feel anything. And it was, you know, supposed to be the best of times, these kind of liberating 20-something loose units. And I think now that I've made space to allow all the painful emotions in my life instead of running from them, it means that I'm equally as open to the beautiful moments, which are equally as impermanent and equally as fleeting. But now I'm like, oh, I feel relaxed or, oh, I feel joyous or, oh, I feel excited. This is going to pass. And so I'm able to be in and enjoy them more in those moments in the same way that when I feel angry or insecure or anxious and I have to go, this is, this is going to pass. <laughs> it's obviously less enjoyable. But knowing that it's all fluid and it's all impermanent and it's just going to keep being that way forever until we die is uh, I just feel like there's been a freedom in finding this toolkit. And, and it was a hard one toolkit. That's what I'm quite proud of as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll say one more thing about myself and then Please, no, keep talking you. about yourself. Um, do you want, is the light, would it be better if there was a light on in here? Is it a I bit don't mind. Dark? Is that too bright? Yeah, we can sit in the dark. I don't okay. mind. We're having some dark conversations. The girls, so. are, the girls have decided to go to the dog beds now and have a muck around for a bit, which is good. <laughs> Although I have Ramona's hair all over <laughs> me now, which is great. Um, so uh, I, when I was young, had something that I won't go into, like, but just a really shitty thing happened. And I did not deal with it properly at the time. In fact, the way that I dealt with it was to essentially yeah essentially in my head go this is not i'm not going to allow this to define me or affect me yeah and then it took me like you know 20 years to realize that that in itself had let it affect me and define me Mm. because me deciding that this thing that i should have actually dealt with this traumatic thing in my life that i should have dealt with was something that i could just ignore or something that i could just you know you know, uh, plow on and go in your face thing you you don't you know scare me can i ask how old you were at the time 17 okay yeah um and yeah right at that age where you know i i was off to you know explore the world you know yeah. go on my life adventures and do what i was going to do and so just in no way dealt with it in a way that i should have I think mostly because in some ways also it was the first really shitty thing that had happened to me in my life. Not knowing that your life will then become a Seriously procession shitty things. of shitty things. <laughs> You're like, if I can just ignore this one, I'm sure nothing shitty will ever happen to me again. And everything's going to be fine. Just fine. Um, and so sometimes it's only in retrospect that you can look back at those things and have an understanding of, you know, like life itself teaches you the lesson that, oh, a bunch of shitty things are going to keep coming at you. So if you don't, um, if you don't come up with a better way of dealing with shitty things, yeah. then th- this isn't this isn't really working out. So how did you come to that realization? The realization where you were like, okay, I, I need to I need to get some tools to deal with what I'm going what's going on. Um, well, without going into again huge detail, I nearly didn't make it through 2015. That's the blunt answer. Um, so how do you get from there to the next bit, though, with the bit where you actually go, all right, well, I now I actively need to, you know, put together my toolkit. Yeah. Well, again, like I 
I don't even know if I had a huge drive to stay alive at that point. I wasn't going, God damn it, I need to stay alive and I'm going to do anything. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what the resistance was to, to not making it through. But I just was on my knees and I kind of, I think it was more the despairing feeling. I thought, I just can't keep feeling like this. I've got to do something about it. And and again, my instinct probably was like, go to fucking therapy for mm. God's sake. For <laughs> God's sake, woman. You shut up. You don't know me. Why, uh, why not therapy? Like Because, I mean, you're a smart person and yeah. you're a person who can talk and talk about life and your life and these sort of things. So what was it about therapy that you... Um, were resistant to. Oh, I was scared and probably scared that someone was going to make me look at whatever that dark thing was inside mm. me and I was going to have to confront it. And if it was terrible, where would I go from there? I'm just scared of, to you a, know. To another therapist. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not working out, I'm sorry. Um, I, I had to do that recently. I, my, my therapist gave me some really good advice that I continued to ignore and then eventually I just was like, I can't come to see you anymore. Really? I just That's feel like terrible. I'm really letting you down. <laughs> Do you think it was the right advice and you just avoided it? Or? It's hard to know what the answer mm, to that question okay. is for me. Yeah, I right. don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think you can make a bunch of arguments for yes, but I think some, like, you know, the thing about therapy is also that, you know, part of it is like, you know, at the end of the day, taking some sort of ownership over your own decision is, like, you know, if someone says, here's what I advise, here's what I advise, here's what I advise, then at least you know that when you do the opposite to that, you are making a conscious choice against advice. You go, all right, I've taken that advice and yeah. and even a whole bunch of it makes sense to me. However, for these other reasons, I have decided to not do it. Yeah, and to now avoid I'm avoiding it. you. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get with your therapist too sometimes when they give you advice and you do that exact opposite, that defiant voice in your head? You're like, to hell with you, Alice. Yeah. This is what I'm doing instead, which is I remember saying that to a therapist and they're like, you're not doing it at me. I Like, you're just doing it at yourself. I'm not there insisting that you do it. Um, but to get back to your how did I claw my way out of 2015? Well, again, and clawing is the word, I reckon I've been in this I've reached this kind of peak state. October last year is when I kind of stepped into the next bit. So that's how long it took to get well and to do all the hard work, but also to reach like, again, that base level happy. Like I'm happy every day, even in the shitty moments, because I can keep reconnecting to that self and understanding and that toolkit. And I think I mean, I, that's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. I know. It's amazing. I feel, you know, and I again, I feel like I've worked for it. So because I have because I have that self parenting and self love, it means that no matter what is thrown at me, I've always got that to to go back to. And I know, and I access it so much more easily now. It's my instinct accesses it because I've kept working at it, like practicing an instrument. Like when I started meditating at the end of twenty fifteen, started twenty sixteen, I sat down with the apps. I just was I scheduled it into the day. Five minutes learning, you know, do a guided thing on. I just I scheduled it. I scheduled yoga. I just started doing research on what sort of therapy might work for me, and so I just made it part of my work. Um, and I on New Year's Eve, I stayed with a very kind man in Sydney who sort of gave me a space to start healing. And I wrote a letter to 2015 on New Year's Eve and set it on fire at midnight, which I now do every year. 
It's a really good cathartic way to let go of a year. And again, like I said before, I'm a big believer in symbolism. So I just kind of went, right, I'm going to set that on fire and I'm going to start doing things differently. And again, it took three and a half years for me to start seeing results for that. What do you what do you see when you look at yourself now? Oh, really awesome little well, my nickname for myself. <laughs> You've got a nickname for yourself? Yeah, because okay. again I like because I had to do the kind of I just kept looking to everyone else to say you're mm. pretty or you're nice or you're funny or you're kind or you're worth something. And again, those people either aren't always around or they're unreliable lovers or whatever they are. Uh, or, you know, you know, I don't, um, my, my parents are a problematic situation. So I'm like, it's God's got to come from you. I just started, I don't even know where it came from. I started calling myself the nugget. I'm like, go, you know, I'd look in the mirror and go, go little nugget. You know, you got this, you got this little nug. You look great today. Go nugget. Uh, which is also or sometimes been reframed to the golden nugget. Um, well, also what I love is that when you just uh, perked up because one of her nicknames is Nugget. So every, oh, t- so every time you're saying Nugget at the moment, she, there was a little bit of a that it was like, are you Spirit talking to Spirit animal. Me? We're little nugs together on the couch. Nugget. Look at no, little mean. nug nug. <laughs> um, so, yeah, having that nickname, when I look in the mirror, what do I see? Well, I see a survivor, absolutely. And... I think I tr- I beat self-love into myself as well. I mean, when you start trying to practice that, you're great. You can do any, you know, I trust you. I love you. You're beautiful. No matter, it just sounds trite. You can hear the words that just sound like paper in your mouth. You just sound like you're repeating some horrible self-help book with a rose and a beach on the cover. And I just kept flogging that as well. I kept flogging that language and I did meditations that would keep reaffirming that. And again, that all worked in parallel with therapy and try to understand my past and the decisions I'd made and to forgive myself for a lot of that stuff so all of it kept coming together so all the the self-love that I feel when I look in the mirror now and I sing love songs to myself in the mirror you know how love songs come on and um the first one I just thought of was simply the best but that sounds trite I don't think it's simply the best but I do like any kind of awesome love song comes on and um oh band of horses no one's ever going to love you more than I do I say that to myself yeah anything that comes on you're just like this is it it's you and me buddy um so all of that work in tandem with it's not just repeating to yourself I am beautiful I am worthy and that crap it's doing that and plus I've done the fucking work it's been really hard and I've got you know bloodied knees from from crawling this far and that's part of loving myself as well I'm like look at you you know look at what you've done and look at how you've managed to survive in the world while dealing with all that shit as well you're cool is how I feel about myself what is the best thing that it's changed for you like you know why how do you feel better about yourself other than saying it other than acknowledging who you are and what you are how has that then resulted in you know you being in a better place now than you were well I left that really problematic relationship which was a big part of squishing down my sense of identity so I was very proud of myself because it took a lot of times to leave and eventually I finally got out which was great um and I just it I just love being in the world I love people that's why I've really enjoyed I enjoyed starting to date again because I 
didn't need any of these people in my life. I didn't need them to fulfill any part of it. I could just meet people on a surface level and go, hi, let's let's talk about things. I went on a, this guy, beautiful person took me on a first date in a cave. We went in a cave and had a picnic in a cave and it was just this lovely, totally authentic, kooky experience because I just walk around now with a very open heart and and I'm a real open book. I'm absolutely fine to talk about my shit. And I think that person that you probably met over a decade ago who was all swagger, no substance, that's not true. I'm sure I had some substance. But I, the things that come out of my mouth now uh, go straight into my heart like and come back out again. So it feels very real to be in the world and – probably a very convoluted answer to your question about okay. so it's it's not commercial radio we don't we don't <laughs> so we have, have to, to cut to an outbreak <laughs> and here is uh here is that song this is band of horses <laughs> give us a call now what's yeah. your song that you like to give sing a, to yourself in the mirror give us a call if nobody nobody loves you <laughs> oh god yeah um, um okay so tell me what the and i don't mean necessarily specifically an incident but i mean in a general sense of developing a practice and, and, you know, taking years to get to the place that you're at, what did you find the most challenging aspect of, you know, you know, developing, you know, those tools? I think loneliness. I think... So, um, okay, so you've mentioned loneliness a few times. What, what, do you, what do you mean when you say loneliness? Well, I think that's why I'm so interested in it. And again, I think I've broken through something with that. But I think that's what stymied me for such a long time. It's certainly what kept me in the relationship and probably kept me making a lot of bad decisions um, about my own welfare was because I don't have a family relationship. I don't have a relationship with my mother. I don't have any siblings. I don't have kids. Um, and occasionally, especially when I, on the times when I was single, either briefly or for longer periods, I felt like I was standing on this abyss of nothing. And I remember one day feeling very shaken because I went to the doctor and I didn't know who to put as next of kin on my, like, I didn't know who to put, what name to put. And you just went, wow, who, who cares? Who's going to call and see if I got home okay or say that they're proud of me or anything like that? And sometimes that loneliness or that sense of feeling alone in the world was so overwhelming that I would just do anything to make that go away. And I think part of, again, breaking through, and that's what was very significant about October last year, was that I just turned and faced it. And then I survived it, Will, like you always do. And it you know, when you walk through that fire and get out the other side, the world is very beautiful. So loneliness doesn't just mean being alone though, does it? No. And I'm alone all, all the time. Even when I was in a relationship or even when I am in a relationship, um, I'm, I love going out to dinner on my own. I've lived for most of my adult life. I moved out when I was 16. Um, but I've lived either with partners or on my own. I think I've lived in three share houses in that time. So I love being on my own, like traveling on my own. But there's something about cutting all those anchors to the world that you feel that humans represent once they start to melt away and you think, fuck. It's, so it's more of an um, existential loneliness than it is about a pragmatic loneliness because, yeah, I really love my own company. It's great. Uh, so 
you said then that you also love humans. Like, oh, so much. So, so much. When you say that, I mean, what do you mean by that? Because we're all trying so hard. I mean, we are all. We are all so trying hard. so hard, and again, <laughs> like so hard, so hard, and that's what I think. You know, I just sound like such a goddamn broken record about therapy, but it's kept me alive, and. All this work I've done, if there's something small I can do in the world and contribute, it's reflecting back what I've learned to get to this spot and everyone's going to come at it from different journey and have different access to things that can that can assist them. But the way that I program the festival is to try and make it about human connection and empathy. And again, that base level of going, we are all trying our best and we're all trying our best with the tools that we've got on that specific day. So when someone's a total asshole on that day, you're like, this is all you had today. This is the best with this is the best you could do. And you know, on all the days that I'm a total asshole, I just think I go home and I go, well, that okay. <laughs> that was all we had today. That's fine. And that sense, so I love that we're all trying our best. What I love is that we're all trying our best and we all hope. There's all this tiny these tiny ribbons of hope woven through so much and what we reach for and I guess again like I mean the dating apps have been very new for me and I've only been on them for a few months and what I've loved I've only met like four or five people what I've loved there apart from sitting down with someone and going let's have a conversation about loneliness and just be two humans together is I like all the people on there are trying their best with what they've got and hope everyone's hopeful. Why else do we stay on there? Why else do we go and meet people? Why else? We're all just, we all carry around hope with us. And hope is such a beautiful thing. So having something to aspire to in that sense, I, I believe in us. And I don't believe anyone's born evil. I do believe hurt people hurt people. I think that what we're seeing on the American political stage is, you know, a giant case of father issues. I mean, it enrages me as much as it enrages everyone else, but someone hurt that person very badly. So, re- how, how do you break the cycle of hurt? Because there is that. I mean, I was talking, we were both having a. You saw Corey White's book, and yeah. Corey's uh, doing an event at the Melbourne Writers Festival. Yes. And so we were both speaking about that. And Corey speaks a lot about the idea of, you know, the, the cycle of abuse and, you know, the cycle of, you know, that a lot of these people who end up in prison and end up committing crimes and all these sort of things are people who, you know, disproportionately people who were themselves hurt or not given advantage in some way. And it becomes yeah. just an endless cycle of this. How, how do you, how do, how do we separate, how do we have empathy for, you know, the fact that, you know, Donald Trump's dealing with daddy issues and that many of the people who voted for him didn't vote because they're racist, but vote because they themselves have been shut out of, you know, advantage and hope and the system and these sort of things. How do you separate, how do you have empathy with somebody, but still allow yourself to have judgment of things that need to be judged? That's a very because good that's difficult. question. And I guess, um, with, t- I mean, I know I brought up Trump, but um, and it I find ha- it. I it find it. Have to be no, no. It's just a good, simple. It is, but I guess I find it harder to to put that empathetic wash on things politically because I'm such a politics nut and very passionate. And I, you know, I I struggle with um, accessing healthy anger. Uh, so 
but that is politics is one thing I get really rabidly distressed and angry about. So I find it harder to to see people and, and have empathy about their political choices, even though what you're saying is absolutely right. I keep thinking in terms of a broader um, sense of society, I keep thinking about there was a guy who I'm sure he's dead now. He was, and it would when you lived in Sydney, I bet he was on the cover of the Telegraph all the time. And I can't remember his name. I feel like it was Dennis. And he was like the go-to Telegraph. He was a sex offender, a child sex offender. And every time he got out of jail, they would basically follow him around and go, look, he lives near a school now. And they take photographs of him going. I remember they took photos of him on the beach um, because he was near children. And that was a front page story. And the guy just looked like, you know, he had a comb over and Coke bottle glasses and, you know, it was a really like, you know, 101, pedophile 101 yeah. kind of if looking you're guy. you categories and you, you need to draw a pedophile, this yeah. is the yeah. you would draw. And he was such an easy target for the Telegraph, for all of us, you know, he just um, – it was very easy for people to go, that guy shouldn't be around kids. And I remember reading an article with him – before he died and of course he was abused as a child and he talked about how when his stepfather died I think it was his stepfather abused him that he went and pissed on his grave and I thought well that's a kid who slipped through the net and if we caught him when he was seven or eight years old and he had access to support or care or healthy coping mechanisms or whatever it was I mean maybe he still would have ended up that way maybe he wouldn't you can't say but all of those you know babies that end up being hurt people and don't know how else to express about hurting other people. I mean, on a much, obviously a very different scale, I've hurt a lot of people in my life growing up because I didn't, because I was hurt and I didn't know how to, to look after myself. So I'd want them to feel bad as well, I guess. So I do have a lot of, when I see people like that on the front of the newspaper, I just automatically think you were really hurt and I'm sorry. I just had a bathroom break because uh, as people who listen to the podcast regularly know that I have the bladder of an 85-year-old man and also I do breakfast radio and so I load up on coffee early in the day and then I pay for that for the rest of the afternoon. You shouldn't drink that much coffee. If you're drinking six cups, you said. Yeah. I, no, I, oh, no, I definitely shouldn't drink that much coffee. <laughs> I'm here to help. I'm 100% okay, good. across. I'm glad. I don't want to I'm give not, you advice that you're going to avoid. <laughs> I am not blind to the fact that I shouldn't be drinking as much coffee as I am. However, I am actually very aware of why I drink that much coffee. Good. Self-forgiveness. Kind of Good. There you go. Where it fits into my world and why yep. I need to drink that much coffee and the role that it plays in a more general sense in my sort of bigger world picture. Good. So I'm while glad. I'm not com- comfortable with individually how much coffee I drink, in the broader picture that is my life and the role that those six cups of coffee are playing, I'm happy with where it fits in. Good, I'm glad that makes me comfortable. So, yeah? Yeah. So, how, um, we were talking about hurt. Yes. I think one of the things that um, I have realised about myself as I've get, got older, and, and I certainly do not mean to, I, I realised as I was about to say this that it it sounds a bit self-serving, but it, I mean, even in saying that, it can be self-serving. I can qualify this as many times as I, I want, but I'll just say it and you can, people can make their own judgments. But, I find that when I think of the regrets that I have in my life, so few of them are about the times that I've been hurt. I feel like I can handle being hurt myself 
In fact, if anything, perhaps I've built up an unhealthy, you know, sense of that I can handle everything, you know, like that that became part of my own self mythology that like throw whatever you want at me life, I can handle shit, you yeah. know, um, which can be problematic in itself. Um, but I, what I do struggle with is when I've hurt other people through either on purpose or completely without thinking about it, you know. And part of that is, part of the journey to forgive yourself for that is to understand that you yourself were hurting. If you don't, if you don't acknowledge that you yourself can be hurt, then it really does feel like when you hurt others that it's a one-way street. That you're you know? just an asshole. Yeah, that you're yeah. just being an asshole. Yeah. How, you said that, you know, there's people that you've hurt and like everybody, there's people that you've hurt. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with, do you hold on to that or are you a person who forgives yourself with that or what is your process with dealing with not when you've been hurt but when you've hurt other people? Um, well, I did. I used to carry a lot of shame about it and I thought I was a terrible person. Um, and I think you do have to, I mean, over the last 18 months has been quite transitional for me as well that I lost apart from, um, uh, stepping away from that relationship, I lost some very formative friendships, um, and a, and a very significant heart person in my life. Like a lot of, like probably about four or five people in the space of just over 12 months are people that I thought would be my forever people. And, and again, because I don't have a relationship with my mother, I, I kind of go, what's, what's wrong with me? Why, what's wrong? What's terrible about me that people want to leave or people don't want to talk to me anymore. And I had to really reflect on that. And I think a lot of it is, I understand that I was doing the best with what I had at that point. So I'm able to turn that back. That, you know, the person that wrote the angry email or the person that made us sent some very chaotic romantic decisions a few years ago, that was the best that I had at that time. You know, I was, and I, that, that little nugget was trying her best. Like I'm very forgiving of that person. I feel very of course, it causes me a lot of distress to cause people pain. And I do try and operate in the world now in a way that minimizes that, but it's inevitable. Uh, but I guess now now I take ownership of my actions a lot more. And and again, if I do fuck up, that's the, I was doing my best. I do believe that. So there, I guess there is a level of self-forgiveness in there. The I think the medical people say first do no harm, right? First rule of medicine, first do no harm. Yeah. I, I think that I'm I perhaps am operating in a first do no intentional harm. Yeah, Acknowledge that's exactly the fact that it. You, you are by the very nature of your existence going to do harm to other people. Yeah. However, try at least your best not to 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 do that harm to others on purpose. And I mean, there are things that are inevitable hurts, like if it's a potential romantic situation, you don't want to see that person anymore. Or, um, but I guess now because I do try and live very honestly and openly, I don't play games with people. I try and tell people how I'm feeling all the time. As you've probably seen today, I'm a bit of a feelings fountain. Uh, so, and I have a good heart. So. When you come at something from a place of kindness and a good heart, even if that person says, you're a fucking cunt, how could you? You think that I really, I didn't, I, I really came at that from a, a, 
as kind an as- aspect as I could, I guess. Does that Tell make me, sense? Tell uh, me what it is that you are most passionate about. In the world? Yeah. Ah. What is, what's, what, what is your greatest passion or the thing that you are most passionate about? Kindness, I think. Kindness, yeah. Um, uh, and art as altruism. I think they're so the two, let's, uh, they're two very let's, different no, things. No, I, I like them both. Let's yeah. deal with them both. Here's what I will say to you is that um, I, I understand that everybody is a different person to everybody, right? Yeah. There are no good people. There are no bad people. And even the kindest person, I'm sure the Dalai Lama was, you know, rude to somebody. In well, a he's been a little bit something. probo recently, yes. Yeah, so, oh, well, yeah. yeah exactly. Right? No, but I mean, the point is, we set ourselves up for failure when we think that anyone is always perfect or always evil. Including the, ourselves. Yes. yes. And the truth of it is that everybody is somewhere on that spectrum and it depends what day it is and the perspective of the other person and all these sort of things. But you are somebody to me who has always been kind. Like my experience of knowing you, I'm not saying that you were during those same years always kind to everybody well, else. Well, no, told if me you dated you me, it probably would have been a different story. But... but but we, um, you know, you've always had a great kindness, I think. And the, the conversations that we've had over the years have always been, always surrounded an element of kindness, whether it be you being kind to me specifically, but or rather just, you know, they, they've always carried an air of kindness. So I 100% believe that to be true and to be part of who you are and, while it, you know, like you said, it might have been clouded by a whole bunch of other things, mm. being a human being. Yeah. Um, it's always been a huge part of who you are. So I understand that. Mm. So I want to talk about the second one. Let's okay. Do, art uh, is what, altruism. What do you mean when you say art is altruism? This is probably a trickier one to talk about because um, because it involves a very secret and private part of my life, which should probably oh, stay, I guess it's not private if I'm talking about it, but, you know, I grew up in the media, as you did to a degree as well, or in the public eye to some degree and thrashed about there trying to figure myself out on the page, on the screen. It's very hard sometimes to look back at that stuff now and I do feel very protective of that person sometimes thinking, you did need to tell everybody that. You should have just maybe thought about it for a little while. The first 10 years of my career can be best described as, I don't know what I'm doing, I hope no one notices. (laughs) Well, that's everyone's entire art career, I think, in terms of imposter syndrome. Um, But again, it was – I don't even think it was 2015. It was that I um, met a very significant person in 2013 who kind of unlocked a bit of weirdo art magic in me. And I wanted to learn how to make art without me being at the centre of it and without my name attached to it because people get very accustomed to thinking they know who you are and what you do. And I guess because, you know, I'd been on Triple J and I'd been on the book show um, and again maybe had somewhat of a self-assured persona or even people just went, that's that dickhead who writes in the age, whatever. You just think, I can't make anything new or different to that because people will always come with that level of thinking they know you. So I started just making art without my name on it and have continued to do so and certainly some of the projects have you know I mortgaged my house to make one of them like I'm never going to make any money off it 
And I do think that deciding that I don't want to have kids was a big part of going, well, then how is my life meaningful in some way? Because life is essentially meaningless. Um, And not to say that having children is the ultimate meaningful thing, but to produce human life is a pretty significant, beautiful thing that you're doing in the world. And you hopefully imbue this little person with something that gives them goodness and makes them make the world a better place. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. Also, you don't have to, you can kind of, you can uh, pass on some of that need for meaning to, I now can focus myself on making sure their life has meaning rather than having to focus that my own life has meaning. Yeah, potentially so. But I knew that, you know, I mean, ultimately... I I don't I don't think I'll be remembered for decades after I die or anything like that. You know, the stuff that I make is is meaningful in the moment. I think, and I the art that I put into the world comes from absolutely a place of human connection and human connection that is what do I what do I want to say about it. It's so hard speaking about it vaguely, so I apologise because no. I'm quite protective of it. I don't think um, that you need to speak about I mean basically if you're about to reveal your Banksy that'd be good for the podcast but I well (laughs) yes Wouldn't that be amazing? No one would have picked. No one would have picked. Um, But no I mean the idea of it existing for for its own sake uh, talk to me less about what it is so that you don't and have more to about do the that, altruistic element and more of it. about the altruistic element absolutely okay so when something surprising and good and maybe kind happens to us in the world sometimes there's a catch you know and the people that and I am all for people helping people either on the street or in life or surprising their bus driver by putting a choir on the bus and it's his birthday and but it always ends up on YouTube and it gets filmed and it becomes an ad for Sony or something like that what does it look like to place these things in the world without expecting anything back without expecting anyone to write you up in the newspaper and say look at this great show that Marie Cardi put on or that so it gets gets documented in some way so you get to show off this thing that you that you did what does it look like to just place things in the world that makes someone feel special and there's no catch you don't make money out of it you don't need anything from it you don't take from it you just give something that is art and that's the driving force of the art that I've been putting in the world the last five years and there's all kinds of secret weirdo projects around there and they are not about me and I don't need to talk about them but I'm going to die happy knowing that they existed. What's – because I mean I I think this is a really interesting area. Um, It's not not in any way the same thing but I only offer it as a – a kind of bridge to a, a conversation that means that you don't have to you know, <laughs> s- speak about something specifically that you don't want to talk about specifically. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to broaden it out a little. But um, I often say to people that the, the best time that I've ever had in my life in my, with my work, with my art, and I even hesitate to, you know, I almost Call do the airports. But, you know, like, I mean, I've spent, you know, 25 years making a living as a professional artist. That's the yeah. truth. I work in the arts and I'm a professional artist and it's taken me a – a long time to, you know, 
be very comfortable. Well, I'm not even very no, comfortable. No, the way still. you said artist the first but, time you went artist. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? But I am. I put yeah. on shows and people come and I it, know you you know, it comes out of my head and that's how I pay my bills. I'm mm. a professional artist. But the best time of it is the time that I spent touring the US where I was just the guy who was on headlining the comedy club on a Friday night that people were already going to. Yeah. Because to me, that was my version. I wasn't anonymous. They still knew who I was, but I wasn't doing it for any purpose. There was other than for it to exist. Yeah. Like you don't get poached into a Hollywood movie doing the, you know, the comedy club in Cleveland. It doesn't work like that. You're doing the comedy club in Cleveland because purely because there's a whole bunch of people in Cleveland who've decided to go out for a night and now you have the opportunity to do what it is you do in front of them without the idea that it's going to be reviewed for the comedy festival and, you know, pop in, in this or that, you know, that people will, will you, you know, it'll have some career advancement or some, it, it exists purely for existing. Yeah. And then once it's done, it's done. Yeah. And... I say without hesitation that it is the happiest that I've ever been. Absolutely. And that is a meaningful life. You know, I'm I'm not an ambitious person. Like I've had an amazing career and I've worked hard, but it's uh, success and, and getting, I have nowhere, like I'm not aiming to get anywhere or do anything, but have that connection and that happiness that you just described, because that is the point of it. Surely, to have those moments where you feel you can you can connect to your lighthouse and you know that it's a true moment and it's not about ticking any boxes or having any aspirations. It's just about existing purely in that moment. I remember we caught up in Los Angeles as well and I remember talking to you about that and I was so fascinated and awed and impressed by you making that decision. I thought it was... It was really lovely because you could have absolutely just kept cruising along being King of Australia and the fact that you chose to momentarily take yourself out of that experience and put yourself in a completely different one I thought was really bold and brave and true. What effect do you think that that external recognition, you know, the drive for, you know, in comedy you often see it in someone who's clearly written a show in order to get nominated for an award rather than written a show that... I mean, Hannah Gadsby didn't write Nanette to win the Barry or to win the, you know, Edinburgh Award or to... She didn't write it knowing that it would become, you know, a piece of art that transcended nationality and became something much, you know, an iconic moment in the history of comedy in the end of it. That's the truth of what that show became. But she didn't sit down and think, you know... I'll write this and this is what it would become. But since she has done that, I've seen a whole bunch of shows that clearly looked at that and went, well, what if I just do that? And then I can have my own Nanette, you know. Mm. Um, What effect do you think that the world, you know, all these other things has on art in a general sense? What effect do I think the world has? Well, so like I, I haven't probably put that in the best language. How 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 different do you think art is if it exists without the attribution and the in secret that exists for its own sake? How integral to that is the the process versus how how much does the audience change the art? I guess is oh the... gosh, that's a really that's a really big question, and I guess everyone's 
creative practice is different. And I mean, a lot of yours, like you said, like yours is based on an audience is in a room with you. And that's part of the conversation you have with them. And whether, you know, you put yourself in this situation in Cleveland where you're like, none of us know what's going to happen as opposed to putting yourself at the Forum Theatre where everyone's like, there's Will from the radio is a very different experience. But your art practice is connecting with people mostly in a live sense as well. So I think everyone's is is different. It speaks to – I needed to do that because I was sick of – being in the middle of things. I was sick of talking about myself. I was sick of writing about myself. I was sick of coming up with funny things to say in a column in the paper. And when you do a weekly column, you know, you just sit there going, what? And, or on the radio, as you know, what, what, oh, the kettle didn't boil. Okay, 600 words, kettles. And I just got so tired of that. And probably my instinct was going, this is all wallpaper. You're going to have to sit down and do the work eventually. So I think that taking myself out of the centre and learning how to give was probably part of the path to my own personal thing. So I can't speak in a broader sense, I think, but I do want to talk about... Nor would I ask you to, to be honest. I was really only trying to frame a more general question for you to answer it specifically. Okay, great. Thanks. That's that's good. I'm glad I did it correctly. (laughs) Damn it. Um, (laughs) But that's really interesting what you said about Nanette and what is beautiful about that and I think what we all responded to so much is that it was, this is a word that I have used a couple of times, it was very authentic. It was very, it it came straight out of Hannah's chest. And that drives me to make everything like coming from my chest drives me to make everything now I got shit canned by some people for changing the writers festival last year because they said it's all about hugs and I made an animal church last year which is one of the best things I've ever made and I would love to make one permanently in the world if I ever found a rich benefactor is just to create a space where people can go and sit and reflect on lost and loved animal lives and take along you know objects that belong to that animal and over the time it becomes this living altar and it's and it creates a space for reflection that's a beautiful thing I'm very glad I put that in the world and people made fun of me you know like conservative press made fun of me some people didn't like the festival changing which is fine you know they've all got their reasons for wanting it to be a certain way as well when it came to doing my second program this year of course I had that anxiety and self-doubt but probably even less I went what the hell else am I going to do? I cannot program second guessing what these people might like or what people might like or what I want to do for everyone else. Or what I just like, what am I trying to say from my bones? Like what, what do I feel and how can I put that in the world? And I think when you, that's the way that you're driven, you can't lose. Like even if people fucking hate the program or it fails and no one comes, it's come from, my bones and not me trying to be something that I'm not or trying to speak to what other people want. And I actually think as an artist, you can't go wrong in that sense. How did you, because I think I want to ask this in parts, when you're sitting down to program the first festival, because we can reflect on that now. Yeah. It's happened. Yeah. um, How how did you, how did you start and what did you, how does it, how, how do you start even putting something like that together? Oh, I nearly, I kept crying for the first six months of the job because I did not know what the fuck I was doing. And I'd come from working freelance for 20 years and I, I didn't know what a KPI was when I started the job and I was in meetings with people who spoke in arts management talk and I was in rooms with people who were saying, 
things like strategic value alignment. And I thought, I actually don't understand. It's like someone talking hieroglyphics. I didn't understand. And I lost a lot of confidence because I thought, I'm, I'm bad at this job because I don't know what people are asking me to words. do. I didn't know the words. I just cried a lot and had to go home over Christmas in 2017 and just go, okay, I need to understand what I'm good at. I'm a good curator. I, I understand how to put I, events together. I understand event management. I understand the creative stuff that I want to put in the world. I've just got to keep re-anchoring to that. And it doesn't matter that I don't talk like these people. So I knew I wanted the festival to change when I was recruited for the job. I said I want to change it and I want to keep a strong element of talks programming but bring in all this kind of immersive stuff and people talking about their human experiences people that we think we know as an artist may be talking about the death of a parent or the a relationship breakup or again the death of an animal and bringing that back to people sitting in rooms going I'm looking at Richard Flanagan or J.M. Kurtzay or Magda Zabansky and I think I know them on one level and all of a sudden or Tony Birch who did a beautiful piece in the animal church about a dog that had died and that's that kind of that element of human connection that I strive for. And I saw that I was on the ground last year and I saw it working in the way that I'd intended. So, what, uh, did you have a highlight? I mean, that you've spoken about the church. Was there something else about your first year that you just absolutely yeah, loved, walked away from and just went, I'm so glad that I was part of that happening? Yeah, absolutely. And again, what they don't tell you when you take the job is that you get to see about five events. So we had 400 events in 10 days last year and I think I got to see about five from start to finish. And that is brutal because your heart and your blood is in that program and you know every detail of every event and then you, it goes by in a blur. So last year, apart from the Animal Church, which was really was like the heart of the festival last year, um, we did a naked event in the State Library that was just wild and beautiful. It ended up with like 30 women naked in the dome at the State Library doing cartwheels and having this beautiful jubilant experience. Um, Chris Fleming, the American comedian who is this total kook and one of my favourite artists, um, came out and was clearly quite bewildered at what he was doing at a writers' festival. But I knew I really wanted him there and he really spoke to the program. And he did he did the, this amazing set and he and I just like had this complete brain connection and and it's one of the – I just felt like I've met – you meet your heroes as you would know from working for so long and I felt – Ah, that's what I wanted to talk about before in terms of hope and what we all want and we're all trying our best. We want to see and be seen, right? That's ultimately all the time what we're looking for, whether we look for it in a partner or someone on the street or whatever it is, we want to see and be seen. And I felt very I felt very seen by Chris Fleming and I saw him as well. And that was a, just the most amazing friendship that was formed out of me asking this person to be in my festival. That was one of my favorite things about last year. You talk about um, that there was a, you know, there was some pushback from people. Yeah. How are you now at um, e external feedback? You know, that's... Sort of <laughs> that's a very benign way of putting it. External <laughs> feedback. You're talking about culture wars? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we live in a world now where, you know, things are prosecuted along these lines and that everything is, everything is a, you know, scandal or a tragedy or a you know, an outrage, you know, it's mm. society we live in. It's the changing nature of the media. You've been in the media. You you can see with your own eyes how it's changed and how this is where the world is now. But 
it doesn't mean that when people are coming for you or gutting for you that it, it isn't still something that you need to work out how you're going to deal with it. How, how, do, how did you deal with it? Well, it certainly wasn't my first rodeo, as you would know. Being in the middle of a media shitstorm is a hugely unpleasant experience. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure the, <laughs> the first couple of times it happened again, I thought, well, this is I will this will be happen forever, and I guess that's one thing that I can do now. I do reach try to reach out to people when I see them sometimes in the middle of something and make sure they're okay and and try and say to to step away from the computer and to reconnect to their community and their support network and that it it will pass. It absolutely does, and so it's always much easier to give that advice to others uh, than when it's you. So when it hit me last year. I mean, it was unpleasant. It made me feel very tired and it made me go, this is why I worked anonymously because the minute I stuck my head up from the trenches, you know, the right-wing press are coming at me again and this is what scares people off creating or doing anything publicly because they get shit-canned from anywhere, from the internet. And if you're not particularly emotionally robust, it can really hurt your feelings. It really hurts people's feelings. Um so how do I, I, you know, I did what I, I, I took my own advice. I reconnected to my people and absolutely to myself and I fucking back myself, you know, I back myself. That's ultimately the end. And I get that people don't like me or they don't like what I make and they're absolutely within their rights to feel like that. Um, but I trusted what I made. I thought it was beautiful. So even though it's it make it was tiring to be in the middle of it, it didn't make me go, "Oh no, I've made a terrible mistake," or "I'm a terrible person," or "Everybody hates me," or anything like that. Well, I think you know the the general consensus is that it was a massive success. Yeah, it as was. Well. So that you know that helps. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but if it had not been, would you have felt the same? I think so. It maybe would have taken it a bit more bruising. Um, but again, that's what I was saying before. If you if you program from your bones or you make up from your bones, even if it's a failure, you can't fail. You know, even if it's a failure on paper or in the budget or however, the fact that you've tried. And I'm a huge fan of Aldous Harding and I, um, the musician, I interviewed her recently. It was a really tough interview. Uh, it was like talking to a Rubik's Cube. She was really hard. But she... I don't think she can – she's a conduit. I don't even think she's of this earth. She, the art just comes through her and out of her. I don't think she's got control over it. It's just she's magical. But she just talks about trying. There's something beautiful in someone that tries and she's not afraid to look foolish and she's not afraid to for people to not get what she's trying to do because she's trying and it feels true to her. And if people understand it, great. And if they don't, that's fine too. But wouldn't you rather be out there kind of – bravely attempting it and foolishly failing they're not doing it at all okay so it it, it was massively successful yeah. i'm gonna say massively successful i think basically on the back of the bob murphy in conversation with me <laughs> i feel like that was the real I'm that sure was the really i said the animal yeah. church was the heart of the festival yeah, I, I meant of course you're, you're in combo um no i so but how then do you was there any fear coming into year two of that, you know, I've put my heart and soul into the first one and, you know, I put all my good stuff into the first one. How do I follow this thing that I did with all my heart the first time around? Uh, I certainly didn't feel that I wasn't going to link it to my heart, but 
I did feel that people's expectations now, they're like, all right, well, you didn't fuck up the first one. Let's see. Let's see how you go, little kooky nugget. Um, uh, yeah, I felt that pressure of people going, oh, the first one was better. But again, what can you do? You can't think about it. And this one, we've got the Museum of Broken Relationships, which is this beautiful project, again, started by an ex-couple in Croatia, two artists who were together for four years and they broke up and they were looking at all the objects that they were separating and looking at the symbolism imbued in those objects that would have meant nothing to anyone else, like half a plane ticket or a button. And they created a museum in Zagreb in Croatia for people to donate anonymous objects that symbolise the end of a relationship, whether it be through death or romantic end. And I've been to that one in Croatia. There's one permanent one in Los Angeles and they have a touring exhibit and it's never been to Australia before. And that's coming for the Writers' Festival. And that's my heart in this in this festival because I've been in those spaces. I can see how those stories of heartbreak that we all share, understanding that we're all going through it, is so important. And again, for my own catharsis, because as you would know from what you talk through on stage, we're all processing something in what we make. The last 18 months, I've had a lot of broken relationships and then my way of kind of understanding that is to put the Museum of Broken Relationships in the heart of the festival and we all have that chance to stand in those spaces and look at those objects. So that was a really important part of the festival for me. At one point I, I you know, I thought I will I will take out a bank loan and I will bring this over myself because we're a not-for-profit. Thankfully I didn't have to because we've got some amazing donors and philanthropists and um, – yeah, I did feel second album syndrome pressure, but again, I'm at the point, I mean, I'm 43, like I've had a, some fuck-ups and successes now, so even though it hurts when you fail at something, it doesn't feel like the end of the world anymore the way it used to. Um, I like buying books. I can what see that I'm surrounded by them. What I've realised, though, is that my capacity for buying books far outweighs my capacity for actually reading those books. Um, as the years have gone on, the you know, probably my capacity to buy them has increased while my capacity to have the time to read them has decreased. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things that I've... Uh, so the reason that they're stacked around this room is that I did a cull. There's actually a whole room full of other books upstairs. But <laughs> these are the current uh, about 100 books that I uh, have been meaning to read that I have not read that surround us at the moment. So... Um, my plan is that I'm just going to try to read two a week for a year and, and uh, then I'll all these books that are in here at the moment will be read uh, and I will have all that Solid knowledge plan. and information in my head. So far, I've kept in my... I've, I'm, I'm only in my third week and I'm on track at the moment. Mazel tov. Uh, but I may need to read a shorter book towards the weekend <laughs> to keep on track. That's okay. They are of various sizes, so I, I'm, yeah. I'm fine with that as the rule. I'm happy to... Uh, but... Why books? What is the affection uh, for books for you? Uh, that's so funny. I was talking to my therapist about that um, because books were an escape for me as a kid, as they are for a lot of people. I had an active imagination. I was living in very challenging times as a kid and obviously as a child you got no access to support or a life outside, really, the the situation that you're in. And... You know, my parents were readers and writers. My grandfather was an author. So I was surrounded by books. And there are very few things in my life that, you know, you it's almost like you reach out and you put a hand on them and that's home. And books and words 
well like that for me. It's it's breathing. The way that I write is not hard. You know, I can be bad at some writing, and but the way that words come out of my fingers is not hard for me. It just works. Um, that's my oxygen, uh, and that. So I can't remember a time without it. But certainly, I I would read at the dinner table. I would read in the back of the car. I would read on the floor of airports. I'm still use books sometimes as disconnection as well um, but they're a great source of comfort I like taking a book out to dinner uh, to everywhere I've got three books in my bag at the moment I understand that we often want to see ourselves on the pages um, or we it gives us a sense of understanding about ourselves and our own situations even if the book isn't directly about our own life I think that they hold up a beautiful mirror uh, this may not be a question you could answer off the top of your head, but I'm going to ask it regardless. Okay. What was your favourite book you read before you were 10? Uh, maybe Harriet the Spy is one that does spring to mind. Um, but, oh God, will I read so many books before I was 10? Who knows? They were all just like floaties. They were little life rafts, I think. I was just probably surrounded by oh. Well, books. I'm, I'm going to keep asking this question. So between 10 and 20, do you have the one that springs to mind? Again, you don't need to lock in an answer. I'm no. not going to go back to you, but I'm just I'm trying to get a sense of where you're at in your reading more than I am a specific book recommendation. You know, like was there a maybe it's easy to say was there a genre of books or a series of books or a style of books that was you know what you were most fond of? No, I think but I, between ten and twenty. I mean, I no, I read like everything. Yeah. I mean, Tintin and Asterix, I read, but I also read, you know. Catcher in the Rye and and fantasy and fiction and and a lot of grown up biographies because I my parents grew up in show business so I grew like read all Marx Brothers biographies I read the Monty Python scripts I would yeah just everything um, and you know and then I got older and as I fell in love with people and they would give me books and I would love that book because of them I remember um, someone giving me Ask the Dust by John Fonte and. I loved that book and that introduced me, I guess, more to Bukowski and then I read a lot of men for years. I read a lot of men. Um, a lot of boozy men was a genre probably for my early 20s and then I was dating them and reading them at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I do love domestic fiction now. I do like books about relationships and families, again, because there's that sense of trying to understand self and experience. Uh, Felicity Ward, when she was on this podcast, I mentioned this a lot. Because it's just one of those little nuggets, nuggets hey. that um, that I've taken with me and tried to implement a little bit. Uh, she was doing a little list of, you know, the, the conversation was around, you know, practical ways that men could be better allies. Let's for a want for a sake of a using a, a buzzword, but like, but th- this was the purpose of it. And there were some really good suggestions, but there was just one that like stuck with me, which was. Try to consume as much female-made art as you do consume male-made art. How do you feel about that as a statement? Is that a like I just I just like your thoughts on, on yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's a very strong statement, and I think the way that men have had to reframe their listening and understanding of their privilege and. Uh, and and feeling women's rage as has bubbled over quite naturally in the last few years. And you can feel it. It's incandescent, those times when women take the streets because they have fucking had enough. 
Uh, it's very raw and it comes from hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and men realise realizing that they have to shut up and listen and and learn without talking. And I think that absolute same experience should be placed on um, white people with people of colour and First Nations experience and sometimes and shutting the fuck up and listening and listening to the experience of things that can't be understood um, intellectually and, again, consuming as much art, uh, literature, music, um, perspective of, you know, particularly in Australia, Indigenous Australians and I think on a global scale, scale Indigenous people and people of colour, I think we all have to shut the fuck up. And that goes back to listening, which is what we were talking about before. Listening is a gift, listening to yourself and sometimes realising that your voice doesn't have to be the loudest voice in the room and that there's so much to learn. So I think it's great advice. I think it can, we can all learn from it. Do you think that women, just because of the nature of the world, the way that the world has been set up, uh, so I'll give you the example of what I'm talking about. Uh, I went and saw M. Rossiano's uh, show, which is called Rage and Rainbows, the other night. It was the first night of it, and it yeah. was at Hamer Hall. And that is a show that is entirely about the, the subject of female rage, but done in a way that is, you know, I mean, it's a, a brilliant show. Does like, she have dancing vaginas in that ten, show? Ten, ten okay, dancing vaginas. Why, why not have Or twelve, ten. maybe. Oh. Like the days like of the Christmas. 12, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, six brilliant songs she's written, co-written with Kate Miller-Heike. There's, mm. it's, uh, the way that I described it was it's, it's, it is about female rage, you know, about the idea of being called an angry woman when you're just a woman that's angry. Um, but it's, part Rocker Steadford, it's part Eurovision, it's part RuPaul's Dag Drag Race, it's part Lady Gaga. It's amazing. It was amazing. And the audience is a whole 90, 95% women who she is speaking directly to. Mm. But what I was disappointed about, nothing to do with the show itself, I was disappointed that the audience was 90, 95% women that men thought that it was not for them. Because even though it isn't about them, although actually, so, by the way, fellas, plenty of us about us. Yes. But you talk about that idea of seeing that expression of female rage. Well, it's not just like in the streets, you know, someone oh, marching. No. This was very much through the artistic prism of them clearly having this release around these things that frustrate and anger and mm. you know, that they all recognise from their own life, even if the example that Emma was talking about, they had their own example of that thing. And I was disappointed that there wasn't more men there. That said, it was the first time I've gone and seen her show. I'm not, you know, you know it, like it took me to know her and talk to her and be invited to the show to go along. But um, it, when you're programming a writer's festival, had uh, are men as likely to go and see women writers as women are to go and see men writers? Is there any thoughts? Nah. Is that? <laughs> no, no, they don't. No, they're not as likely. I think that's probably the base level answer everywhere, unfortunately. And I mean, yes, yes, they need to. I mean, men need to see. I showed Nanette to men. I showed Nanette to the men in my life and, you know, and cried with them, which I think was very important. And I think that's why Hannah did such a beautiful job there is that she gave a lot of women the chance to say this 
and for men to listen to it. And I do think a lot of men ended up seeing Nanette. I think in its early incarnation, everyone went, oh, you know, it's Hannah, the lesbian comedian, and we'll go and, you know, it's it's a strong women audience. I don't know how you make men go see women's art. I don't know if I knew that. I have some sort of magic potion, I guess. I but mean, it's I, something that you must consider when you're programming and putting something together, or do you not? Do you just say, here's what we're going to program and it's up to audiences to find this regardless? It is. I mean, it's all a part of, you know, marketing. It's This year we've got 349 events. Platforming voices that need to be platformed, ensuring that they are accessible to when people are browsing the program, they can see everybody. And so, I mean, people are going to see who they want to see. You provide, you, but making sure the majority of artists in the program are people who might have a different perspective, you know, and getting that balance with there's some people who everyone, I mean, you put Magda in a festival, it just sells out, you know. There are certain people who you put them in a room and everyone sells out. Um, and I mean, that's what I co-curated Women of Letters for seven years, which was a spoken word event. And we would always program with five women and often it was four. Our first ever show was Judith Lucy, Adelita um, from Magic Dirt, Miff Warhurst, God, who was it for? Angie Hart and a lesson on writer, Lorelai Vashti, who ended up working on the show. But we would always go, people would go, oh, Judith Lucy, I know her. And then we'd make sure there was someone on the bill who they'd think, I have never seen that person before. And... I loved that part of it because that was often the person that they went away thinking, who was that? That is an amazing person that I need to know more about. So, yes, I suppose I'm conscious of it in that regard and ensuring that those voices that these people might not hear are in events that they would go to. So, again, there's a lot of events that are based on Women of Letters, which is four people doing readings. And there's one of those events Luke McGregor is in, who's a very accessible person for our audience. And then making sure that there are other people in that event that they might not, they might be introduced to. It's a slow, gentle introduction. Um, we, we, we've uh, talked for ages and yeah. I um, uh, have some standard questions that I need to ask. Okay, sure. So, um, but you know, I like talking to you. So it's Yeah, been, it's nice, isn't it's, it? Yeah, Am yeah. I allowed to ask you anything? Yeah, absolutely. It's a conversation. Well, I wanted to. Plus this also exists for the sake of, ex- there's no, you know, there's no one else gets to say what's in this podcast other than me. If you're talking about, you know, art that exists for its own sake, there is no agenda to this podcast. Yeah. It exists because I decide that it exists. And the minute I decide it doesn't exist anymore, it doesn't exist. I can stop doing it tomorrow if I want to. And no one gets to tell me what it is or how it should be. Plenty of people still do. I think that's why people respond to it so well. People really love this podcast and they love you. And I think it's for that reason. People hate me as well. I have people. I don't know. You hate is such a strong word. Well, I mean, as in, I have often am surprised at the people who are like, who have complaints about the podcast where they're like, oh, you talk too much or it should be this or it should be that. And I'm like, there are plenty of jobs that I do where those criticisms or whatever, perfectly valid for you to make. But this is mine. It's literally called Willosophy with Will Anderson. (laughs) How many more clues can I give you? It's a free fucking podcast. I'm not getting paid for it. I'm not making any money out of it. It exists because I want to have these conversations with people that I want to have these conversations with. So. No, there are no rules. Of course, if you would like to ask me a question, ask me a question. I, I 
I, w- I just off the back of that as well and off people kind of criticizing you or saying they hate you, I think that's another kind of gift of understanding self and, and loving self is that now when people are mean to me or they will write you're a dickhead, I just think you, you I'm really nice. You're really missing, missing out. out. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm sad for you that you feel that way, but you like like I'm a I'm a nice guy. Um so that maybe does go. Do you do you feel like you love yourself? Oh, that's I, I prob. It's a very complicated question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think that what I have been for a very long time is a person who has never felt. I mean, as you said earlier, imposter syndrome is very common in the arts in general. But you know, particularly being a kid from a dairy farm, you know, not not born into a you know a showbiz a family, fucked up show business yeah, family, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. like no, it, that wasn't my world. My yeah. world was being plonked in the corner of a you know milk milking shed or like you know being on the back of a motorbike while you know dad was doing the watering or whatever. That's where I grew up. I grew up mm-hmm. on a road named after my grandfather. You know, two hundred and fifty people in the entire area. So, um, I, I've always had a really like two things working at once which is this this understanding that i should like that if i can do this anybody can do this there yeah i wasn't born under a star there is nothing particularly special about me uh so there's part of me that sees it like when somebody criticizes you you're like oh man like you you think that hurts me i mean sometimes it does by the way but but there's another part of it is like, you should be inside my head. Like, I know every bad thing about me. I know every shitty thing I've ever done. And I am literally a professional critic. Like, you know, someone who can be, you know, you think I can be mean to Russell Crowe or something in the news? Imagine how mean I am to myself, you know, in my own head. And particularly when, um, particularly in comedy, and this was something that Hannah spoke about in Nanette to give it a reference point, was the idea that she was saying, I am sick of being self-deprecating, you know, because I am someone who that self-deprecation is about other people's comfort, not about my own, right? Yeah. Whereas I have had a different take on self-deprecation because because I have been the the norm, you know, like a, you, know, you, know, you understand the sense I'm, you know, the cultural norm. Yeah. And because I have been reasonably successful from an early age, a lot of my work has been in the realm of it being self-deprecating because it offsets, you know, that idea of... So I've been living in in some ways the self-deprecation is a lie, you yeah. know. Or, but then the more you do it, the more that's the message that you're giving your brain. So constantly you're like, every year I'm going to create this like series of embarrassing things about myself and then talk about them constantly. And your brain, after a while, can't tell that, that's yeah. what it is. You know, it becomes the story you tell. So I have two really different things going on, which is one that is quite a lot of negative reinforced self-talk, you know, combined with some real things that I you know, was feeling shitty about. But then I also have always had this great capacity to keep going regardless. So I've had this, like I've never let that negativity stop me from doing anything. And that in itself has got to a point now where, I need to that's that's just not the solution anymore. No. The solution now isn't to 
just go, keep going anyway. Yeah. I'll just do more stuff. And I'll just be good at more things. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'll just I'll just be more successful. Yeah, you gotta count yeah, about you gotta counterbalance the criticism. Look how, look how good my life is. Look how many houses I have. Look how successful I am. I've got every job. I've had every job. Yeah. I've won all these things. I've blah 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 blah. You know? Look at me. Like, surely all these things that are in my head can't be right. Cause look at all these this external validation that I can yeah. point to, right? So that's in the last couple of years combined with a whole bunch of other things is I've come to the realization that 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 would be an incredibly destructive way for me to continue living my life. That's so amazing that you've learned that. That's great. However, I have not necessarily been able to net. I mean, I am gradually bit by bit trying to, um, trying to, address that well i mean even under acknowledging it is the beginning as we all know but that's the that's the start of it you reflecting on it this is the work you're doing the work because you know it's there and you're probably looking at undoing years of that pattern like you said it's been part of your career that you set up here's another shitty thing that i did and i was such a fuck up like that's entrenched in you so it's probably like years and years of unpacking sorry it's going to take ages but 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 also that fact that you like, you know, and this, I guess maybe this is what I was asking about before. Maybe I was asking more about myself than I was to you, but the idea of how much you let external validation of what it is that you do, you know, that somebody else likes what you do, become a ball and chain around you. Yeah, that no. You keep doing something or that you do something in a sort of way because other people enjoy that versus am I myself the person who's creating this thing enjoying it that's 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 it for me now is that am I myself in, and enjoying it because the festival you have to make for yeah. people but it has to it has to come it can't be about anyone else I can never second guess doing it for someone else that's a miserable path for me okay so here are All the right. standard questions okay um what do you reckon happens when we die nothing at all well do you mean after we die or at the moment we die? At the moment we die, I hope to be surrounded by people, by loved people. But um, you know, I've been I've been in the room when a friend passed, and 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 when my dog died, we were looking into each other's eyes because my friend Pam Ahern, who runs Edgar's Mission, because I was in distress knowing that it was going to happen, and she said the best gift you can give this animal is to stay cheery. And she said, it's going to be the hardest thing you ever have to do because animals, as you know, pick up on your emotional states. And if you're distressed, she'll be distressed. So you've got to dig deep and be bright and happy. And, you know, and the way that they say that, you know, mothers pick cars off babies and you just find something in there. And I was smiling and singing to her and looking into her eyes as she died, which was a total gift for both of us. Um, so I've seen, I've been in the room when life has left bodies and that's a real privilege and very challenging. What happens after that? I mean, both of those people visited me in my dreams, but that's my subconscious, I think. I don't really think anything happens. Do you think about death? Yeah, all the time, every day. I love thinking about it and talking about it. I think it's really important. Never have I lived more fully than when I keep reminding myself that this is finite and I'm going to die. So that makes me make better decisions about the people that are in my life, better decisions about my life. No one the 
fuck else is going to be there when my head's on the pillow apart from the choir surrounding me singing love songs but it's you with your head on the pillow at the end really you're the one having that experience you're answerable to yourself you have to have done the things that are important to you and been around the people that you love not that you think that you owe something to or that you think that you are beholden to so always I remind myself all the time that's why I talk about it on first dates like you know we're all gonna die isn't it amazing that we're alive at the same time you and me will like we are alive at the same time what a cool weird random beautiful thing and it's gonna fucking end the way that everything ends I think that's staggeringly gorgeous and it makes me feel exhilarated it doesn't make me go quick quick I've got to do things but just makes me make better emotional decisions this is not a standard question, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. Okay. Um, how would you feel about the idea that if we were closer friends than we are? How, how would I feel about... Like if you, if you and I caught up for a coffee or something every now and again, or yeah. a phone call, how would you feel about that? Great. Great. I would, I would like that. Yeah. Always, you're, you're someone who I've always wished that I had perhaps a... Uh, you know i'm not gonna bother you i'm just saying no you don't bother me i I like like... you like i see you will i see you a lot because i know you struggle a lot in the world and i think it is important for people who struggle in the world to reach out and i've reached out to you a couple of times because i knew you were going through a tough time um i think when we met and we would have met like probably either just prior to triple j days or something i think we met at the big day out in 2008 we did and i think the confusing thing about that time you know for me is that i would meet particularly clever handsome men i go well i meant to date that person and when you start to realize you get older you go it's not about that energy you can actually have friends in that realm but that was a learning for me so i probably wouldn't have understood how to relate to you on a non-romantic level. You were either someone that I was going to make out with or just someone that I didn't hang out with at all because I didn't really understand what it was to have many male friends. So it's a much safer place for those sort of things to take place for me. And, yeah, I think we should. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I like you and I've always liked you a lot and I, I just – I'm, I'm – I thought, fuck it, I'll ask you on tape. Yeah, oh, then, then you can hold me to it. And also the way that I think I can be, not that I think any friendship should necessarily be based on what can I give you, no. but I've my work can maybe help you in terms of that negative self-talk and that sense of self-love because I can tell you on the other side of it, friend, it's really, really nice. It's really nice to wake up and have your own back and not have that loop of criticism in your head. Like if I, I can help you with that in any way, then that's – I will. Is, is, I mean, I, when, when we're not recording, I'd really like to talk to you about your art because like I um, I do feel like one of the things that I'm going to have to face up to is that at some stage I'm going to have to make something that's 100% what I want to make as opposed to, you know – all the other factors that go into what it is that I do make. Yeah. And I've made so many things that have always, I do have a nagging sense. And, you know, there's so many fears that come with it, which is that idea of just going, what if I made something that was 100% what I wanted to make and and no one liked it? <laughs> you know, we it did can't this. fail. That goes, we can't because you did it. You can't, of course. And that is maybe what you're inching towards yeah. in knowing yourself better. You're going to understand what you want to say and put in the world. And at the moment, you're still trying to kind of navigate all the, 
you know, the stresses and what your head wants and what it's doing to you. Right. Well, okay, we're off the standard questions now. All right, questions. we'll go out for coffee, fine. Yeah, uh, that'd be great. So, um, all right. Uh, so, death, we've covered off. Yes. How would you like to be remembered? Um, when people speak of you, what would you like them to say? As as someone who ha- who loved very ferociously, I have so much love to give and I give it out very passionately. And I, my friends who are my chosen family receive a lot of that love and I see it reflected back. So I, I think that is how they'll remember me and that feels good. Uh, what is your greatest strength, do you think? I keep wanting to say kindness. Uh, kindness is definitely my petrol uh, emotional honesty these days, I think, is my greatest strength. And I've got a good heart. What's the thing that you still feel like you want to need to work on a lot? I don't know because... Even the things that I fuck up during the course of a day, which all the time, are fine. <laughs> I mean, that's good. That's a good answer. It's fine. Yeah. Um, if, if you could change one thing about the world, big, small, but if you could just change one thing about the world, what would, what would you change? I Well, I wish that we were all able to tap in our reserves of empathy. I wish that people could understand that we're all trying our best and it's really hard. Uh, and now the time machine question this is how oh. we finish. Oh. So uh, I have a time machine. Yes. You are a powerful person that seems legit. Uh, at this stage it's an intellectual exercise, but it depends how long I do the podcast. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually I might get a wealthy Elon Musk might tune into an episode and Great. Uh, you know. Um no, I uh, so here's the you get one trip on a time machine. Back and forth forward. You, it's not a one way trip, but you get one trip. Uh, now what you do is up to you. You can revisit a moment in history and be an observer. You can witness a moment in history and try to change it. You can go back to a moment in your own life and observe it or you can go back to a moment in your own life and change it. Or the fifth option, of course, which is uh, no thanks. Uh, I don't want your your trip on your time machine. Well, I would never be so rude as to say no to a free trip on a time machine, but that's a a bit of option paralysis you've just thrown at me there. Um, You know, I can think of um, certainly a moment in my family that I'd want to go back and observe, but that does feel too personal to talk about. Um, certainly not change anything, anything. Nothing at nothing. all. Nothing. No. Well, how, why would you? It's perfect. Like this is the present moment. This is it. You know, the, the, I, that's, that's what's great about it. Um and, you know, you watch enough time travel films and you go, one thing changes and then, you know, all of a sudden the McFlys are rich, you know, it's not, like... It's not how my machine works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of observing. There, is, there are... Um, there are writers who 
uh, Kent Haruf, who wrote the Plain Song trilogy, I can't read him without just feel my heart hurts that he's dead. Um, oh, I'd like to hug Kurt Vonnegut. I'd like a time machine to go back and say thank you to Kurt Vonnegut. Weirdly enough, that is the most common answer people know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't be surprised. It's pretty amazing. Um, thank you for doing this. The Melbourne Writers' Festival is when and how can people find out about it and go? August 30th to September 8th, um, mwf.com.au. feels weird to be plugging the program after we've just like had a big emotional deep dive. But well, yeah. No, but I mean, you know, I like that people plug yeah this. i mean but also i i think that plugs i've never been a person who here's what i will say in relationship to art and plugging yeah because there are so many people who get upset about plugs or they feel uncomfortable with plugs it's the one thing that i don't know if i learned to or whatever but i was like well if you're not if you're proud enough that you made it then never be ashamed of plugging it because all i ever do when I'm plugging is saying, hey, I made this thing that I'm really proud of. Here's how you can come and see it. That's, yeah. It's part of the process for me. I'm not ashamed of it. It's more that I didn't come here to be on your podcast because I had something to promote. No, no, I wanted like us to, to have that conversation. Things. Well, that's why we talked less about the... Yeah. You know, we talked about you more than we talked about the festival. The, but the festival interconnected. is yeah. like very much part of you and your world right now. So. yeah. Like, you know, it is about you as okay. much as, you know. Yeah, right? mwf.com.au. There you go. Thank you.